before we get into the talk tonight, I wanted to say thank you for those of you who came to uh, Ciders and Stars at my house on Saturday. Uh, I had a great time pulling out my telescope and pointing it at things in space and nerding out um, with some of you and at others of you. Um, I appreciate all of you who humored all of my various uh, geekery. I don't know what the right word is. Uh, and even though it was kind of an overcast night, we still got a very clear picture of the moon, which was really fun. Uh, if you missed that and are interested in it, don't worry. I think we're going to make that like a quarterly thing. Um, and even if we don't, like, I'll just let you know when I have my telescope out in my backyard and you can just come over, you know? doesn't have to be like a church thing. You can just come over to my house. <sighs> so thank you for those of you that were there. <clears throat> um, so in keeping with our theme of growth this year, um, if we want to be the if we want to grow more into the people that God created us to be, one of the things that we have to learn to confront is our fear. So what are you, what are you afraid of today? What fears do you bring through the door with you tonight? There are a lot of options, right? There's a lot going on. Um, it feels like maybe the, the fears around the pandemic have sort of subsided to some degree for, for many of us. Uh, but there's still a lot of cultural upheaval that that caused. There's still a lot of political friction. Uh, it feels like, depending on who you talk to, the economy is just like sort of hanging in the balance. Uh, people are losing their jobs. Um, people are still sick. There's a lot that we could be scared of, that we could be fearful of. Fear is inevitable, right? We're all going to experience it at some point in our lives. The question is what we do with it. How will we respond to it? And will we let it rule us? The story we're going to look at tonight uh, is the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt. It's a very, um, it's not a very well-known story. It's a story that takes place when Jesus was just a toddler. Uh, but it's a story that's dripping with fear. And in it, we see two diametrically opposed ways of interacting with fear. But before we get into our story tonight, to better understand what we're about to read, I need to give you a very brief recap of some key moments in, in Israel's history. Um, I am not going to do service to any of the stories that I'm going to briefly recap for you, but I'm going to hit the high points so that you kind of have a better idea what's going on here. So back in Genesis, there's this man named Jacob. Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament, by the way. There's this man named Jacob who is later renamed to Israel after he wrestles with God or an angel. It's not quite clear. Um, he's, he's renamed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become sort of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, not sort of literally the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest is a guy named Joseph. Joseph is a dreamer. God speaks to him in his dreams. Uh, long story, very short, Joseph gets a big head about it and his brothers resent him for it and they sell him into slavery, which just seems like an extreme measure. Uh, if you had older brothers that um, picked on you, this is like that times a thousand. Uh, but Joseph is incredibly talented and extremely faithful and he gradually works his way up from being a slave to being second in command in Egypt, which is where he lands. Under his leadership, while the rest of uh, the area, uh, the rest of the land around them grapples with intense drought and starvation, Egypt has stockpiles of food because of Joseph. 
Eventually, Joseph is able to bring his brothers who uh, betrayed him and his father who thought he was dead, his father Israel. He's able to bring them to live in Egypt, saving them from starvation. 400 plus years go by and Israel, the nation, continues to grow. And eventually a Pharaoh comes to power who knows nothing about the the history of Joseph and the, the Hebrew people. And he just sees when he looks at the Hebrew people, he just sees a minority group growing and growing and growing. And he worries about them outnumbering him and eventually conquering him. So in his fear, in his attempt to keep them from growing, he enslaves them, uh, subjects them to harsh labor. And when that doesn't quell their growth, he orders that all baby boys under two uh, should be drowned in the Nile. One of those baby boys named Moses is spared from death when his mother places him uh, quite famously in a basket and floats him down the Nile where uh, he's discovered by the princess of the Pharaoh who adopts him and raises him in Pharaoh's house. Again, long story, very short. Eventually Moses grows up to be the leader who will liberate and lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the desert, eventually to the promised land. That is a snapshot of a key moment in Israel's history uh, Israel's oppressed, God acts to save his people. First by bringing them to Egypt and then by leading them out of Egypt. So try to keep those details in mind as we read uh, our story tonight. Um, last week, Brandy talked about uh, the story uh, when Jesus is like a, a 12 or so, um, being left behind at the temple by his parents who freak out and come and find him. We're actually going to rewind a little bit. We're going to go back to when Jesus was a toddler. Um, Two weeks ago, I told the story of the Magi. This story that we're going to read tonight immediately takes place after the story from two weeks ago. So I'm actually just going to read that story because it is actually the introduction to, I'm going to read the story of the Magi because that is the introduction to our story tonight so that you don't have to try to remember two weeks ago because what is two weeks ago? That might as well be 2022. Um, So this is Matthew chapter two, all of chapter two, but don't worry, it's only 23 verses. You're gonna be fine. And it goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the Eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on a pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and religion scholars in the city together and asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him Bethlehem, Judah territory. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the East. Pretending to be as devout as they were, he got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, go find this child, leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word and I'll join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the Eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshiped him and they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod, so they worked out another route, left the ter territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. That is the intro to our story. Here is our story for tonight. After the Magi were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice, Herod is on the hunt for the child and wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed, he got up, took the child and his mother under the cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way by daylight. They lived in Egypt until Herod's death. Herod, when he realized that the Magi had tricked him, flew into a rage. He commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem and the surrounding hills. He determined that age from the information that he had been given from the Magi. Later, when Herod died, God's angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother and return to Israel. All those who are out to murder the child are dead. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother and re-entered Israel. When he heard, though, that Archelaus, who is the son of Herod, had succeeded his father as king in Judea, he was afraid to go there. But then Joseph was directed in a dream to go to the hills of Galilee. And on arrival, he settled in the village of Nazareth. So did you catch the parallels or, or the echoes of Israel's history in this story? Again, we have a dreamer named Joseph leading the hope of Israel to Egypt to protect them from death. Again, we have a tyrannical ruler in fear ordering the slaughter of innocent children. And again, we see the hope of Israel moving out of Egypt into the promised land of Israel again. The message that the author of Matthew here is sending is when we were helplessly oppressed before, God stepped in. He's doing the same thing again now to liberate us again. First, it was Egypt and enslavement there. What did they need liberated from now in Jesus's time? Again, it was tyrannical oppression. Certainly Rome, Israel at this point was a, a, a subjugated nation to Rome, uh, but even more so than needing to be liberated from Rome was being liberated from Herod. Herod was a uh, Rome-appointed king of the Jews. Herod was an absolute monster. Um, I learned more about Herod this week than I think I ever have before, and a lot of it I can't share with you tonight because it's truly awful. Uh, but what I can tell you is uh, he enacted insane taxation on his people, and he reduced most of the populace to poverty to pay for gifts to Rome and for himself. He enacted laws that violated the Torah. Uh, he erected statues uh, to Roman gods or of himself to be worshiped. Uh, he brutally tortured and executed anyone that even whispered against him or anyone that he, even, he just thought might be whispering against him. And not just them, but their entire family. He was ruthless. Things were so bad that Pharisees at the time started to prophesy that when he died, then the Messiah would show up and come and make things right. Of course, Herod had those Pharisees and their families executed. Um, and he was so fearful of challenges to his power that he even killed two of his sons, each of whom he had handpicked to be his successor because he thought 
that they were trying to overthrow him before he was gone. Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor, once said that it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. He ruled with an iron fist and essentially had people living in a police state. Um, there's this guy named Josephus who was a first century Jewish general that turned into a historian. Um, and he writes this. This is kind of a long quote, but this gives you an idea of what was going on at that time. <clears throat> Josephus says this about Herod and, and the police state that he had his people living in. No, <laughs> I completely typed this wrong. Uh, people were not permitted to meet in public. They were not permitted to talk to, together or being together at all. And all their movements were observed. Those who were caught meeting together were punished severely, and many were taken either openly or secretly and put to death. Both in the city and on the open road, there were men who spied on those who met together. Those who obstinately refused to go along with Herod's new practices, he persecuted in all kinds of ways. As for the rest of the populace, he demanded that they submit to taking a loyalty oath and make a sworn declaration that they would maintain a friendly attitude to his rule. Now, most people yielded to his demands out of fear, but those who showed some spirit and objected to this compulsion, Herod got rid of by every possible means. Right before his death, uh, he ordered that distinguished men from every single village in the country to be rounded up and slaughtered when he died so that upon his death, the entire country would be weeping, whether they liked it or not. Just an insane, monstrous person. And this is the backdrop against which our story takes place. This is the world that Jesus is born into. And this is the reality for the people of Israel. And the author of Matthew here is saying, God is acting again against oppression. Just like he did before, he's doing the same thing now in bringing us Jesus. We can trust Jesus. Matthew is addressing the fear of the people that they lived in every single day. There's a lot of fear in this story. There's a lot of fear in our lives today. We don't have uh, someone like Herod reigning over us, but fear is still unavoidable. So we have to learn to interact with fear in healthy ways. In our story, we see two totally different ways of interacting with fear. Um, responding to fear in ways that promote life, like Joseph did, or responding and reacting to fear in ways that crush it, like Herod did. Uh, full disclosure, sometimes when I'm writing talks, not all the time, maybe half the time, I like to listen to or read sermons from other pastors to see what other people are saying about this thing, especially if it's kind of an obscure story like this that people kind of just gloss over, so there's not a lot out there. Uh, so this week, I, I stumbled across this homily written by a uh, Episcopalian priest named Michael Marsh, which is like, gosh, that's a great name. That guy hit the lottery of names, Michael Marsh. It just rolls off the tongue. Anyway, I read a homily that he uh, gave or wrote, and I just thought that it was so incredibly good that um, I wasn't going to top it. So much of what follows is inspired or borrowed ideas from his homily. I try to give credit when I am ripping someone else off. It's kind of hard to do when you're speaking, but this is my way of telling you a lot of these ideas are Michael Marsh's ideas. Michael Marsh. Um, so there's a lot of fear in this story, right? 
Joseph had to have been afraid. I don't know about you, but if, if I have a dream, gosh, I had a dream last night that I found a weird looking spider and woke up scared. Joseph had a dream that, in which he's told that Herod is going to try to kill Jesus. He had to be afraid. And then we're told later that he's, he's afraid when it's time to move back to Israel because he hears that Herod's son is now ruling. That makes him scared because if you remember what I said around, right before Herod's death, Pharisees start prophesying that when he dies, the Messiah is gonna come. So when Herod finally does die, a bunch of people claim that they're the Messiah and lead revolts. And this, the nation sort of breaks into this really hectic civil war for a little while until Archelaus, Herod's son, with the help of Rome, comes in and just brutally squashes all of it, just murders everybody. Joseph hears about that and is like, maybe, maybe we should not go back. He's afraid. And yet, Joseph doesn't even say a word. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this. He doesn't say anything in this entire story. He simply listens. He responds to what God tells him. He's open and receptive despite his fear. He still acts decisively in the face of fear. Um, fear motivates Joseph to action, but he, res he, he, he responds to his fear through his connection to God and his trust in what God is saying to him. Herod, on the other hand, is loud in this story. He talks a lot. He asks others to give him answers. He actually doesn't try to find any answers on his own. He's constantly asking other people for the answers. He orders others to do what he wants. He plots and he plans. And then when he doesn't get his way, he lashes out in violence. When he hears that a king of the Jews has supposedly been born, it says that he is gripped with fear. He fears losing control. And he reacts by trying to control others and eventually by slaughtering innocent children. Herod rules with fear because fear rules him. We all face fear, right? If you have never been afraid a day in your life, I would love to talk to you about that. Because um, either we need to get you some help or you have something to teach all of us. Uh, we all face fear at various times and we all have the capacity to respond to fear like Joseph or to react to fear like Herod. We all have the capacity to respond to fear in ways that promote life or react to fear in ways that crush life. As long as we're unwilling to face ourselves and our fears, to face the fears that live within each of us, we'll be possessed by that fear and we'll continue in the ways of Herod's oppression controlling and crushing the people around us. So uh, to that end, here's a few helpful questions uh, to help you uh, and to help us begin to confront the fear in our lives. Uh, imagine the life that you want for yourself or others. How is that life being disrupted or hijacked by fear today? Picture your ideal life. How is fear getting in the way of you getting there? By what values are you living your life? 
And in what ways is fear present in those values? I think this is really, um, this is really telling. Like, what are the things that you value? And in what ways are fear represented in the values that you hold dear? And then where is your life stuck? Where are there patterns in your life in which you keep doing the same misguided thing over and over and over and over again? What are you avoiding or ignoring or hiding from these days? In what ways do you overcompensate? And what's the fear behind all of those things? Now, obviously, these are pretty big questions to uh, try to process on the spot on a Tuesday night. But I hope that uh, you'll reflect on these throughout this week. I'll post them up on our social media so that you can see them again. Um, fear can turn us into monsters if we allow it to rule our lives. So where's fear holding you back? Where is fear turning you monstrous? Where might God be speaking into your fears, directing you to him rather than taking control yourself? These are big questions, I know. And maybe if nothing else, in, in your moments of fear, in our moments of fear, may we be reminded of what we see in this story, that God was speaking and acting in the past and that he is still speaking and acting today, addressing our fears if we're willing to listen. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you are um, worthy of our trust. God, thank you that you are big enough to handle our fears. Whether rational or irrational, founded or unfounded, God, thank you that you care about us enough to want to know what our fears are and want us to cast them on you. God, I pray that we would um, take seriously be, uh, doing the work to become aware of the fears that drive us. And God, may we grow into people who uh, respond to fear in ways that promote life rather than what seems to be the default of, of reacting to fear in ways that inevitably crush the people around us and crush ourselves. God, we love you. Amen.